It's time for the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is the voice of the working class, Rick Smith. And welcome, brothers, sisters, working class heroes. This is the Rick Smith Show. Thanks so much for being here today on the big program. Lots to get to. Lots to talk about, but seeing a lot of articles recently about how grateful, how grateful we should all be that we have an uber wealthy class of billionaires who live in the lap of luxury. And most of the time, the hardest work they do is move money from one pocket to the other. But I'm, I'm seeing this, this, we should just be grateful for our billionaires. We should be grateful for the gouging that they're doing. We should be thrilled with greed. Greed. Greed is good. And I was I was reading a Wall Street Journal article just before I came on air. And, and remember, the newspaper of the investor class, uh, it was an opinion piece, uh, oddly enough, written by, you know, uh, some, some folks over at the Stanford University Hoover Institute, one of our finer right-wing stink tanks. And, and, and again, their, their opinion was, we should be thankful that we pay high drug prices. We should be grateful because if Americans weren't overcharged, this was their tagline, if Americans weren't overcharged, we wouldn't have innovative treatments. We wouldn't have nice things. If they didn't get to gouge our eyes out, they wouldn't save our lives. That's the argument. And they go through how the rest of the world mooches off of us. They free riot, they freeload off of, of our, our being gouged because they negotiate for prices. They negotiate for the drugs to be competitive in their market. Now, if, if you're a drug company and you're getting screwed by other companies in their, in their negotiations, isn't that part of the free market? Isn't that part of the give or take? When did monopoly and when did gouging when did that become free market capitalism? I know it's part of it. Look, you know, I've got this thing that could save your life. How much are you willing to spend? How deep are you willing to dig into that pocket so that I could be richer? Now, the weird thing here is you see these arguments over and over and over again. Uh, the fact that we are as they point out in this article, we're we're 4% of the world's population and account for more more than half of the world's revenue on a new drug. So when a drug company comes out with their new drug, their latest, greatest, that could save your life, um, they make their profits off of your back and mine. And look, if you're fortunate enough to have good health insurance, like I am fortunate enough right now to have good health insurance, then you don't mind the gouging so much. But when you got to dig into your pocket, and pay, you know, $500, 1000 $2,000 a month for drugs just so that you can stay alive. There's something wrong with this picture. And what Joe Biden did and what the Democrats did, with no help, oddly enough, from our Republican friends uh, on, the, on the prescription drug front, is he said, look, there are some things we should be negotiating over. Uh, there are some things that should be much cheaper. You shouldn't be able to gouge granny to the point to where she's back on the cat food. And I think as a society, we're kind of all there. But as they point out in this article, uh, there's a cancer drug, uh, Keytruda, I guess the name of it, it, evidently was Merck's number one top-selling drug in 2022. 
generated what they said was sales revenue of, of almost $21 billion. 60% of that came from right here in the good old US of A, which, you know, you get people going, you want to know why we're never going to find a cure for cancer? Almost $21 billion in revenue from one cancer drug. And you go, how is it that we give these, these drug companies so much? And I love some of the arguments that they made. You know, like drug companies would prefer that everyone pay high prices. <laughs> yes, every drug company would prefer that you pay double what it's worth so they can line their pockets. And this is one of those things that it's just, it's blowing my mind that, that they're arguing for, yeah, we should have obscene profits for these drug companies because their argument is, is it's the only way that they're going to invest. It's the only way they're going to do the research and development to, to get new drugs because they're greedy and they want more. Never mind the fact that a good majority of the research being done uh, on the drug front is being done with the public money. Never mind the fact that public universities spend a lot of time, you know, researching this stuff. Never mind that bit of reality. The argument is, is hey, we need to pay for gouging because, you know, if those people who want to import drugs from Canada, if they get their way, you're not going to have the drugs to save your life. Uh, you know, if they get their way, we're going to all wish they didn't. You mark our words. And the thing that bothers me is what I know is uh, drug companies spend more on advertising than they do on research and development. They spend more on saying, hey, is this right for you? than they do on going, hey, maybe we could develop something that could could cure cancer, but then we would put ourselves out of business. Because understand, first and foremost, the drug companies, about profit. I know we like to think, no, no, they're 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 innovators, they're you know, they're they're about you know helping humanity. And look, there are probably some fire breathing do-gooders in those companies who want to do those things, but at the end of the day, it's about the money, it's about the profit, it's about the coin that's in their pocket. And I love these stories that keep popping up that say, no, no, we need to have greedy corporations. No, no, we have to have billionaires. You know, without billionaires, there'd be no innovation. There'd be no entrepreneurship. And you go, we had we had entrepreneurs and innovators before we had a, an entire class of billionaires. We had people who wanted to transform industries and do things because, well, yeah, they made a little bit more money, but it also came with some stature. They created new technologies. Someone invented the wheel. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's mind-blowing to me. But we're, we're fed this constant stream of, you know, without billionaires, there'd be no job creation. Uh, they, you know, they're the ones who, they're the ones who build the industries. And yeah, they do, generally out of people's demand. Generally out of people wanting things and them servicing them. That's how the economy used to work. You know, I had a rich uncle who used to say, look, we can give working people and poor people all the money. Eventually, we're going to get it back. Eventually, we're going to going to provide the services and the housing and all of the things that they need that they're going to have to come to us and buy from us because we create this stuff with their labor and we cheat them on their labor and then cheat them on the price of things. It's a win-win for us because that's the free market. But there was that period where we had some some guardrails. Couldn't gouge too much. 
And if you got too wealthy, we taxed it so that you had to use it in other ways. But hey, we're told, look, our billionaires, they're philanthropic. They do things for society. They invest in, you know, things like healthcare and, and, and education, and they help alleviate poverty. And of course, research for drug companies. And you go, um, do they? Um, do they? I, I don't know. I'm not quite sure I'm buying all of that. And we're sold on this idea. Without them, we would just be standing around looking at each other. And without understanding that by having a bloated wealth class, what you end up with is mass income inequality. You end up with outweighed political influence for the handful. And really an, an, a concentration of economic power that a, a roundtable, a business roundtable, if you will, could collapse the economy if they want it for their political benefit. And we don't talk about this stuff. We don't talk about any of this. We just argue and yell at each other. And the weird thing is, is we don't even get upset when we know they're cheating us. And that's the part that blows my mind. We know they're cheating us at every opportunity. And yet, well, we don't seem to get all that upset. And I look at Elizabeth Warren's tweet. Uh, she tweeted out the other day, fewer Doritos in a bag, fewer Oreos in your box, less toilet paper on your roll. You aren't imagining it. Big corporations really are making you pay the same amount, sometimes more for less. She calls it shrinkflation. And she says, we got to crack down on it. And I don't care what you call it. Call it greedflation. Call it shrinkflation. Doesn't matter. The rich are getting richer. And you and me and everyone else who punches a clock and works for a living, we're getting poorer. And that's where we have got to come back to, as I've said a million times, we have out-procreated them. They have all the money. Absolutely agree. They got all the money. But there are more of us. Maybe we should start voting for some, some good policies. Some stuff that are the actual reality instead of what we're, what we're fed. Maybe maybe the actual facts. Just my thoughts. Want to hear yours? Email me, rick at the ricksmithshow.com. We are AFGE, the American Federation of Government Employees. We represent 700,000 federal and D.C. government workers who are the vital threads of the fabric of American life. We support our nation's military. We take care of our nation's veterans. We protect our nation's borders. We respond to our nation's crises and natural disasters. We provide services to our nation's seniors. The American Federation of Government Employees. We work for America. Thanks for tuning in to The Rick Smith Show. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Rick Smith Show. Like us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can find all that and much more at thericksmithshow.com. We are AFGE, the American Federation of Government Employees. We represent 700,000 federal and D.C. government workers who are the vital threads of the fabric of American life. We support our nation's military. We take care of our nation's veterans. We protect our nation's borders. We respond to our nation's crises and natural disasters. We provide services to our nation's seniors. The American Federation of Government Employees. We work for America. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So for the past, what, three years now, uh, all we've heard from the MAGA crowd in the loudest, most uninformed way possible are the cries of, the recession is coming, the recession is coming. 
And yet, jobs report after jobs report, mm, different reality. And, and the reality, and here's the problem: uh, alternative facts versus actual facts. The difference between what MAGA wants, what MAGA believes, what MAGA continues to spew, and actual reality are very, very different. And good, fortunately, because nobody wants our economy to collapse, or nobody should except a former president, and nobody should want the economy to struggle because working people will struggle. You, me, us, we will be the ones who are struggling. So here to share some thoughts on the alternative facts versus, well, actual facts. I've asked our good friend, Brendan Duke, to come talk with us. Brendan is a senior director for economic policy there at the Center for American Progress Action Fund. Brendan, thanks for taking time for us. Thanks for having me on, Rick. So, you know, I, I see this, I see this a lot. Uh, there's what mega world keeps telling themselves this alternative world that they live in where everything's terrible the sky is falling cities are burning crime around every corner it's horrible out there and yet you know i see all of this stuff that says hey we're heading in the right direction man i mean look i think that description you're giving is where we were four years ago right when crime was surging unemployment was super high essentially when Donald Trump was president. But we've made enormous progress since those dark days of 2020 when we had a pandemic, when, you know, when the bottom fell out of the economy. And I think last week was just the latest evidence of this, that we got a GDP report, which showed the economy grew more than 3% last year, blowing past all the other advanced economies, blowing past expectations. It also showed that inflation was back down to 2% over the last few months. And then we got this jobs report. And the context there is, you know, all the folks on, you know, the Wall Street economists, all the, you know, people who predict these things, they were talking about, ah, maybe the economy's slowing, you know, maybe, maybe it's actually true and the recession thing is gonna happen. And then the Bureau of Labor Statistics just knocked their pants off. It showed that we added 350,000 jobs in January and they had to revise up how many jobs we added in November and December, that uh, wages are growing much more quickly uh, than inflation. And actually this recovery from the COVID recession actually boasts the best inflation adjusted wage growth. That is, you know, wages, you know, how much they're outpacing inflation. It boasts that the most of any recovery we've had since 1980. Yeah. No, you, well, know, every, you know, this is one of those things that I think is really important to point out because every every recession of my lifetime, uh, workers have lost out. We've fallen right. backwards. Our standard of living has gone in the wrong direction. And this time, this time around, because of a lot of the policies uh, that Biden and the Democrats with a, a spattering of a Republican here or there, uh, this is the first time in my working life where that's not going to be true. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think just, you know, to go back to this, four years ago, we were in a recession, basically. The unemployment rate surged to 10%. And normally it takes a long time to get over that. The Great Recession took, you know, almost a decade to get out of. And here we are just a couple of years later, because of the American Rescue Plan, making that, you know, strong investment in American workers and the economy, because of frankly, getting vaccines and people, you know, shots in people's arms made a big deal. Um, and those investments, you know, the uh, infrastructure bill, the CHIPS Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, 
all these investments are just kind of pulling it along. So we just have gotten that boost up and it's going to keep us going. And where we are now is where, you know, I think it's just a lot of people are comparing us back to where we were in 2019. But the thing is, it's just not normal for us to actually bounce back within just a couple of years from a recession. And that's because of the leadership we've seen under President Biden. And again, for me, it's one of these moments where you go, everything that we've been told for the last 40, 50 years about the economy um, has been wrong. You know, this idea that, no, it's the invisible hand. Let the, let the market decide. And you go, no, we can we can actually do some smart things. We can make sound policy, smart investments, and do some things to help move an economy in a way that benefits not only the 1% and the very wealthy, but, you know, folks like you and me. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just, you know, it's the wages and inflation that I think matters most because people care about prices and they care about their paychecks. And I think an important thing is about six in 10 workers are making more than they were a year ago, which is above where we were right before COVID. So, you know, again, you know, we've not just bounced back, we've bounced back better, so to speak, um, from where we were before the pandemic. And I don't think anybody expected us to be there. The so the question budget, I have for you, Brendan, yeah, is, go ahead. Yeah. is, is you know, because we've been told, you know, for, for you know, the entire Biden presidency that Biden's a failure. We can't ex we can't afford the spending, the investments that are being done. Everything's Biden's fault. Um, how do you now spin this around that the economy is doing well? Even Larry Kudlow, uh, Trump's former director of National Economic Council. Um, even he's saying, look, costs are coming down, wages are going up, we're moving in the right direction. He said, look, we had, quote, we had a blowout jobs report. More Americans are working, and that's good, no matter what your party registration is. And he even goes as far as to say not every economic stat should be viewed through a political lens, which is him trying to backpedal on all of the, 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 the predictions he failed to make in the past, uh, that the economy was all on, on you know slippery slope, everything was going to explode we're actually in a good spot and even someone like Kudlow is saying that when does that trickle down to the average working person because you look at the polling out there brendan um it ain't good yeah i mean i think that has been a big mystery for people but i actually think it's pretty clear which is the last it's really been the last six months or so that the economy has really taken off that inflation has fallen that wages have been growing and, you know, people, you know, obviously journalists and the stock market, they pay attention to those things, you know, every millisecond, right? But, you know, I think everyday people, it takes them a while to feel things. And, you know, it's just taking time for, I think, perception to catch up that when we have folks like Larry Kudlow admitting that uh, the economy is doing gangbusters, that we had Breitbart last week say, strong GDP numbers once again humiliate forecasters. Those sorts of things, I think, are starting to resonate in people's minds. We've actually seen, um, you know, the University of Michigan measures consumer confidence. We saw that shoot up one of the fastest increases we've ever seen um, in January. And, you know, I think an important thing to realize is that actually consumer confidence now is actually higher than where it was in January 2012, right before President Obama won re his reelection. So I think um, all of these, you know, all the economic data is going in the right direction. We're seeing consumer sentiment pick up. And I think, um, you know, perception is going to catch up with those realities pretty soon.
So the other part of this then is when do we stop listening to all these talking heads? Because they've been so repeatedly wrong, especially on this and on a lot of other things. Uh, but, you know, you turn on cable news and then depending on which hat you're wearing, uh, you're getting a different version of reality. When do we stop? When do we say enough of that already? Look, bad news sells. I mean, you know, I like to joke, you know, GDP blows past expectations. Let me explain to you why that's bad for Joe Biden. Um, so, you know, that's just kind of how the news is that kind of sells the, you know, the doom saying. And so, and, you know, I think it's telling that, um, frankly, a lot of analysts, even Larry Kudlow are struggling to, um, you know, come up with the reason why this is bad. So, you know, I, I think, you know, this stuff is entertaining. People love stories of sharks eating people over the summer. Um, you know, and that's just kind of the news bias. But I think, um, you know, again, as people feel this recovery, as they feel inflation recede, um, stuff will pick back up and, you know, we'll start worrying about sharks eating people at the beach over the summer. Oh, the good old days. Oh, take me back. Oh, but here's the thing, and this is what bothers me. It's not just the economy. It's just not economic stuff. It's everything. Every time I, I talk to a red hat, uh, so a Trump supporter, the sky is falling in their world. Uh, crime is on. In fact, you know, I had a, I was talking to a guy recently who was telling me our cities are crime riddled, you know, hellscapes that, you know, they're, you know, their people are being raped and mugged and beaten around every corner. And I'm like, how do you leave the house if all you're consuming is this? The, everything's on fire and everything is failing and society's collapsing and everyone's out to get you. I don't know how you I don't know how you wake up in the morning feeling like that. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I think social media and the media play a big role. But, you know, I think that could have been an accurate description of how a lot of people felt in 2020. But crime is down. That is the thing is that, you know, we are just kind of getting back. You know, we've gotten back in all in in large part to that normal. And I think a lot of people's perceptions need to catch up with that, that crime, inflation, all of those, you know, issues we had, you know, exiting that pandemic economy, getting back to normal, most of those things are past us. And I think people, you know, just kind of need to realize that. And, you know, I, I would just say, like, in terms of crime, you know, again, it shot up under Donald Trump. Donald Trump wanted to cut federal funding for the police. You see what they're talking about with um, the FBI trying to defund it. I mean, I think in, you know, just even a more basic level, um, you know, they really, their top priority in Congress is cutting funding for the IRS, which is actually an important law enforcement agency. They actually busted Hamas a couple of years ago for financial crime. They, uh, they arrest fentanyl dealers. They're, you know, some of our, they're one of our most important um, crime fighting tools because they follow the money. I mean, this is, you know, the untouchables, right? That's what, um, that's how they caught Al Capone. These guys caught Al Capone. And so, you know, again, when you look at it, it's pretty clear that that, you know, when things went out of control was on all, under Donald Trump. And actually, they have a policy agenda to bring things back out of control all over. Again. And worse, uh, you listen to you know, I was just reading a story of the the top 10 things Trump wants to do as president. And it's it's all bad. You know, uh, we're, we're going to go firing government workers. We're schedule F project 2025. We're going to bring patronage back. Uh, it's going to be about revenge and retribution. 
Uh, nothing about making people's lives better. In fact, when you've got a former president who comes out and says, I want the economy to collapse so that I'm not Herbert Hoover, man, I don't know how, I don't know how you vote for that. I, I, I just don't know. But here's the thing that gets me. You know, the rest of the world is struggling and, and a lot more than we are. And and I, I think there's a massive disconnect. Now, I understand, look, everything's everything's individual. Everything's your own kitchen table. Uh, your reality is what you see every day. But we've fi- fared so much better than the vast majority of the rest of the world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, wage growth has been faster. GDP growth has been faster. Inflation has been slower. Um, you know, a key thing is that Europe's obviously much more exposed to the supply chain disruptions that came from Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. And that um, at the same time, their economy hasn't bounced back nearly as much. Germany's in the middle of a recession. Um, you know, the U.S., you know, Joe Biden took a lot of flack for taking, you know, making that aggressive investment, the American rescue plan to get things back going again and you know frankly kind of took it in the teeth for two years and now you know looking back you know seems like it was a prudent investment yeah and you know i think when you were talking about donald trump you know and you know hoping for you know a uh, uh a depression i mean my reaction to that is who does he think he is a democrat because it's always a democrat who takes over right when the economy is collapsing and you know just all of the bad things apocalypse the headlines those sorts of things that's when democrats get elected they clean stuff up yeah. um you know it's that's generally when we like that's been when we like democrats the last two times I, I thought the, the best line that Hillary Clinton had in her 2008 campaign was it takes a Clinton to clean up after a Bush uh, because right. of the Bush recession that Bill Clinton yep. had to clean up after. And obviously the debacle and mess uh, that W left the country in 2009. Uh, I thought yep. that was a, an interesting line. But but, you know, the, the fact of the matter is our economy is doing well. We are on the road to a solid, solid improvement. Even so much so that I was I was looking on social media that you you got Chinese investors looking at their stock market, you know, basically begging the U.S. to bail them out because they're doing so poorly. Yeah, I mean, I think that's actually one of the biggest challenges for the world economy is um, the struggle China has. That they have a big real estate bust, which is actually you know, I mean, hopefully in some ways we can benefit from that in the form of lower prices. But, um, you know, I think that's a huge challenge for the world economy. But I mean, look, I mean, I'll tell you right now, if people worry about China, like at the end of the day, there are people from China who fly to Ecuador, travel through the jungle to come to the United States. I think that tells you everything you need to know about how great this country is doing, that you have people flying to the jungle and traversing hundreds of thousands of miles uh, to reach our border because the economy is doing so well. Well, maybe maybe that is going to be the immigration policy Republicans come out with. Destroy the economy so no yeah, one will right. want to come here and it'll actually be uh, the doomed right. fire-burning hellscape that right. they believe it is. And that will be our immigration policy since it seems they don't want to do anything else. Uh, but, Brendan, I appreciate you taking some time. Good news. Uh, thrilled to hear it. And I hope you'll come back and share some more with us down the road. Thanks for having me on, Rick. Our good friend Brendan Duke, Senior Director for Economic Policy there at the Center for American Progress Action Fund. I want to hear your thoughts. Is it burning in your neighborhood or things turning around? Are things looking up? Are those factories being built? Those jobs being created we've been talking about? 
Email me, rick at thericksmithshow.com. For our Free Speech TV audience, thanks so much for being here. For everybody else, quick break. Right back. show where working people come to talk so after nearly 14 years seiu president mary Kay henry has announced that she will not be seeking uh, another term and this is going to leave a pretty big hole to fill over at seiu uh her leadership has seen some really really visionary really bold kind of moves the fight for 15 thing you know, I remember back in 2012 going, you know, this is great. I love the fact that we're pushing the envelope that far. I even thought back in 12, 15 was a lot. Uh, now you go, well, it took somebody with, with some pretty good vision to say, nope, this is what we, this is what we earn. This is what we should be getting. And look, we've even seen some beyond that. I'll be here to share some thoughts on this and all of the top labor stories of the day. I've asked our good friend Michael Sonato to come talk with us. Michael's a labor reporter over at The Guardian US. Michael, thanks for taking time for us. Uh, thanks for having me on, Rick. So what do you, what do you take out of uh, Mary Kay Henry uh, deciding after 14 years, uh, step aside, let, let somebody else take the reins and move the two million member union in a, in a new direction? It's, you know, it's going to be interesting to see uh, who takes the helm. It's a huge union, 2 million members. And, you know, like you said, fight for the 15. Uh, that was kind of uh, at the, the forefront of this whole, you know, emergence of reemergence of the, the labor movement and popularity. I think that really caught on with the, the fight for 15 uh started over a decade now and you know like you said now 15 dollars an hour is not enough uh right now so it'll be interesting to see um you know where that goes from there and it was a you know a huge campaign the union put a lot of money and resources into it and uh it, you know it was one of those things where it wasn't yielding them uh, you know, union members and things like that. But it, you know, it was really important for, uh, you know, service workers, food service workers, especially who, uh, you know, you look on business reporting or whatever, all fast food workers still get denigrated. Uh, any talks about the minimum wage, things like that. And uh, they've really, uh, you know, changed, I, I think, the the, it was a cultural shift in terms of how a lot of people, not everyone, unfortunately, you know, view these workers. They're not young kids uh, in their first job anymore. Uh, these people are doing the work of two or three people. Uh, you know, they're primarily, you know, women of color, you know, immigrants working these jobs, uh, you know, working them for years and years and years at a time. Uh, for low wages, there, you know, every few months there's child labor violations with one of the big fast food chains. Uh, they're big wage theft violators. Uh, they have a, a litany of sexual harassment cases against uh, um, that workers are subjected to. So all the the workplace abuses are amplified in these, you know, you know, in these work areas and. Uh, you know, the fight for 15 played a, a big part in, you know, organizing that, letting these workers know, um, you know, what their rights are and to, to stand up. 
you know, whether it's through strikes or, you know, efforts to organize, unfortunately, the, the franchise model uh, and, and the way our economy is set up, it really uh, makes unionizing, you know, really, really difficult, not, you know, in, in these, you know, different low wage sectors. But I, I think uh, it's played a, a, a big shift in how uh, the country and our, our culture views work. And, and I don't think that could be understated. So Mary Kay Henry is definitely going to be missed, but I think it uh, is exciting because, uh, you know, younger people uh, seem to be uh, really interested in unions, uh, really interested in changing uh, and shifting workplace dynamics. And uh, I think it will be exciting to see what comes out of um, you know, the SA, SEIU and their, their, their next chapters, uh, you know, that union. Yeah, I mean, for me, the, you know, looking at what happened when she took the reins, you know, from, uh, from Andy Stern, who was very much uh, a business unionism guy, and moving it during the Mary Kay Henry years to a kind of a movement unionism model. Uh, because that's always the push-pull. Is this a service, you know, like health and like life insurance or car insurance? Or is this something that you become a part of and, and push not just for your own good, but for the good of, of society. And Mary McKay Henry most certainly took SEIU in the movement unionism direction. Because as you pointed out, uh, with the Fight for 15 campaign, that wasn't bringing in new members. That wasn't bringing in dues dollars. That wasn't, it was actually a drain on the dues dollars. But it was the right thing to do for as a, the overall society, for the movement as a whole. Uh, because it has. It has brought young people uh, to the forefront. It has brought young people back to unions. So this idea of you know the fight between business unionism and movement unionism, she has certainly brought SEIU uh, onto the mo movement side. Yeah, absolutely. And they've won all, they, you know, led legislative efforts at state levels to get those minimum wages increased to you know, $15 an hour and now more. And, and, you know, unfortunately, the federal minimum wage is still unchanged since 2009 at seven twenty-five an hour, which is uh, important. Uh, but, you know, a lot of states and a, a lot of municipalities, uh, you know, fight for 15. Uh, they were there, you know, pushing and getting those bills uh, across and, and fighting the business opposition, uh, the scare tactics that, Oh, this is going to cause people to lose jobs, and they, they, you know they still do it. The, the you know fight for fifteen. They won twenty dollars an hour for fast food workers in, in California, um, and you know that was a huge fight. Uh, and, and you know that fight continues, uh, you know, in California, and it continues, uh, you know, across across the U.S. and um, you know pushing. Uh, the the envelope in getting uh, those wage increases, especially for those low wage uh, jobs uh, that you know workers are, you know, like I said, exploited, and you know those workplace abuses that we see are kind of amplified in those low wage sectors. So, yeah. it's and it's not just really fast food either, Michael. I mean, the fact that you know they've been they've been organizing childcare workers and organizing, you know, uh, the the the, the 
uh, the healthcare workers at the bottom end of the scale, airport workers. They've been doing a lot of the low wage organizing that uh, didn't seem you know, like <laughs> it didn't seem like it was possible to organize. They went out there and, and, and did the hard work of, of getting those people together and fighting for better wages, hours, conditions, opportunities. And I think that will be our legacy, even in the with the backdrop of the Trump era Janus decision that, you know, obviously uh, Trump appoints Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court. Uh, you end up with the Janus decision that made the entire country a no rights at work uh, scenario for public sector workers, which which hurt SEIU, hurt AFSCME, hurt the public sector unions. Uh, but they, they kept they, they stuck to it. And I think that's that's part, partly going to be her legacy as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, um, you know, the estimates of uh, union losses from Janus and uh, the organizing efforts to, to get people to, you know, keep, uh, you know, the union membership, uh, I, I think they, they blew people away in terms of the, the impact of that and really mitigated it to, uh, you know, levels that they, you know, I don't think the union anti-union forces were anticipating, which is why, you know, we're seeing uh, continued uh, pushes on, on the front to, um, you know, make it harder for people to unionize and to attack unions and attack the National Labor Relations Act and uh, what have you. Yeah, corporate America, they like they liked their hands firmly in control of the steering wheel. But we are seeing organizing and every day I'm getting press releases from the UAW saying, hey, you know, we're, we're taking on the South. We're going after Volkswagen. We're going after Hyundai. We're going after all of these 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 companies that in their home countries heavily unionized. But oddly enough, when they came to the U.S., they went to the places where they could exploit workers the most, where labor laws are weak and, and able to be abused. Uh, and now you're finally getting people saying, hey, look, you know, after the big win with the big three, uh, that, hey, maybe we maybe we want better. It's, you know, going to be really interesting, especially, you know, yeah, a lot of these plants are in the South. They were located there to uh, deter uh, unionization efforts uh, in Alabama and Tennessee. And you have a lot of these European companies who uh, aren't doing the union busting themselves. This happened in uh, the Volkswagen previous elections. They've got business groups. They've got uh, business lobbyist groups, uh, you know, putting billboards up around these uh, these auto plants. Politicians, uh, yeah, politicians, elected officials. You had Alabama governor and uh, our commerce secretary, uh, you know, say some ridiculous, scare tactic comments uh, against unionization, which uh, you know makes no sense and is ridiculous. Alabama actually has uh, is higher unionization rate than mo most of the south i think they're around six percent which is still ridiculously low but um but yeah it, it's it's going to be a nasty fight so uh yeah at volkswagen they just announced the the uni united auto workers that they reached that 50 percent threshold so uh and their plan is once they get to 70 percent they're going to hold a rally in that area and file for or ask the for uh, union recognition, uh, which more than likely is going to trigger a, a union election. And, and we'll see uh, if those union authorization cards uh, and that organizing can um, take uh, and, you know, take on and defeat um, all those, you know, chamber of commerce, those business groups that are going to throw the kitchen sink at um, 
you know, these communities to try to scare them away from unionizing, uh, which, you know, is it, obviously ridiculous given that, you know, um, the German union, uh, sheet metal workers union have already endorsed the Volkswagen United Auto Workers Drive. Um, and, you know, they're, they're obviously watching closely. And I think that's why we've seen in previous uh, union elections that Volkswagen themselves hasn't been as aggressive and letting and you know everyone else do their dirty work for them. Um, and uh, unfortunately, uh, you know these groups like the Center for Union Facts, they're not listing um, who funds them. So, um, but we can only imagine. And you know they you know they've been doing in Alabama too, circling the wagons, getting ready for these big fights. So I, I think those the, you know these auto organizing plants, it's gonna. Uh, it, it's going to be really interesting to see um, how those pan out and, um, you know, hoping that the, the union is successful uh, and at least, uh, you know, unionizing a few of these these spots. And I think if they are successful, it's going to have a, a big impact for, you know, organizing in the South and, and just for the, the movement in general. Yeah, no, it's, it, it, if they can organize those auto plants and then start going after some of the feeder plants, it could be good for the industry and for workers in those industries and in manufacturing as a whole. And we are rebuilding manufacturing in this country. So to get those jobs back, to get those to be union jobs with good family sustaining wages, with solid health and retirement security, that's all good stuff for working people in this country. But you brought up the Center for Union Facts. Um, anything but facts come out of that place. Uh, yeah. you know, one of the, another one of these well-funded anti-union groups with a euphemistically nice name. Uh, that well, how can you be against the facts when we know that it's all propaganda? Uh, but these are the kind of groups that that get get involved in these campaigns uh, to spew their their anti-worker, anti-union rhetoric. And and it's not surprising that uh, Rick Berman and his uh, his group have come back. You know, for this, because there's there's money to be made. Yeah, they make millions of dollars doing this. Uh, he's got million. He's got a bunch of nonprofits, uh, so he's getting tax free. Um, you know, he, like you said, this is dark money. Uh, you don't know who's funding it. You can only imagine. Uh, but you know, he's being sent out there uh, to do uh, the union busters uh, and the business lobbies uh, dirty work. Yep. And again, as my grandfather always said, if, if a rich guy's going to spend a buck to tell you you don't need something, you better spend two to get it. So all this money going into the, 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 the Rick Bermans of the world and all these union busting uh, attack dogs, every dollar going into their pockets, uh, the workers better better wake up and realize they're not fighting for your good. They're fighting for their own. I got to get your thought on something else now. Um, Elon Musk made the news again. Uh, evidently, a judge in Delaware uh, wiped out a, a contract. Uh, that would have given him, and this is just mind-blowing, would have given him a pay package from Tesla of $56 billion. That's a billion with a B. That's not the millions. $56 billion. But the judge invalidated this. And in fact, uh, I've seen you know some reports that say maybe he could have gotten around $2.2 billion, not $56 billion. Uh, any thoughts? My thoughts are that kind of pay package, the audacity is just ridiculous. You know, I've speaking, spoken with a lot of Tesla workers out in the Fremont plant in California. They're making in the low 20s uh, at, at the very best. And the workers that have been there for uh, years, uh, you know, a few years and have lasted, um, 
you know, that they're high turnover there. They're, they're not making more than what union workers make. So in comparatively, uh, it, it's just egregious um, that, the you know, Elon Musk, uh, for, for those who don't know, you know, he bought Tesla. He went in, he didn't found it. He pushed the founders out, called himself a founder. Uh, and he's, you know, looking at the case, uh, he, he kind of filled the board with a lot of yes men who are fanboys of Elon Musk. So, um, you know, they pulled this package out, but uh, just, you know, based on the facts, you know, if you have stocks and your CEO is getting paid that kind of money, they're not making that kind of profit. Uh, it's obscene. Uh, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. And the judge, uh, you know, threw it out through that yeah. compensation out. He's still an incredibly rich man. He's not going to feel it at all, but there is uh, nobody, Scott, there is nobody worth $56 billion. There's just not, no. but you said that, you know, the, the workers at, at the plant in Fremont, California, you know, they're paid like 20 some dollars. I thought I heard Elon Musk say they're all millionaires. I thought that they that were, they ridiculous. were It'd be on TV. If that was it, they, instead of retirement packages, they get uh, stocks, they get um, shares, which, which is, you know, good for them. But, um, you know, from what I've spoken with workers, a lot of people, you know, they're younger guys, they cash them out before they can get anything with them. Um, and, you know, they're only getting a, a few shares. Uh, it's nothing to, it's not making anyone a millionaire. No, I thought uh, they were all millionaires. Millionaire. Yeah, so... <laughs> um pre, you know present the evidence so elon musk like loves to lie and exaggerate uh you know we've seen throughout his um you know comments to the media so 56 uh, no. billion dollars i mean i and then i happen to see a clip with laura ingram and some idiot on fox news and they're worried about you know this kind of injustice can happen to you if we let this stand if we let poor elon get cheated out of his 60 56 billion dollar paycheck it could it could happen to you and i'm going no it can't no one's writing me a 56 billion dollar check not even close and it, it's just kind of it's just ridiculous just it, lackeys no working person will ever be in that position and, and it's just and i don't know how you watch that and go i gotta change this channel these people have lost their freaking minds lost their minds defending a 56 billion dollar pay package lost their minds uh it's just that simple but michael i appreciate you sharing some thoughts good talking with you keep up the amazing work over there at the guardian uh, i follow it all the time thanks so much thanks Rick. our good friend michael sonato make sure you again check out his work uh, incredible stuff want to hear your thoughts email me rick at the ricksmithshow.com gonna take a quick break right back stick around you listen to the rick smith show i'm rick smith and this is labor history in two on this day in labor history the year was 2008 that evening at 7 15 p.m an explosion rocked the city of wentworth just outside savannah georgia an explosion had gone off at imperial sugar Highly combustible sugar dust had ignited. Eight people died at the scene, while later, six more workers succumbed to their injuries at a regional burn center. The explosion left dozens more injured. The sugar refinery and packaging plant had operated since 1917. It was one of the largest refineries in the United States. The company had been warned for decades about the dangers of sugar dust. Yet, the dust collection system was undersized and 
in disrepair. The building materials at the plant were outdated and added fuel to the fire. Worse, as many as 40 workers were not trained on how to evacuate in an emergency. Once the fire started, it burned quickly. The inferno reached temperatures of 4,000 degrees Fahrenheit. The Chemical Safety Board investigated the accident. Their conclusion was that it was entirely preventable and the deaths and injuries should not have happened. OSHA introduced a bill to regulate the dangers of combustible dust. But the Combustible Dust Explosion and Fire Prevention Act of 2008 did not make it through Congress. The company settled a series of civil lawsuits and paid a $6 million fine for the safety violations at Wentworth and another one of its plants. But they admitted no wrongdoing in the disaster. By November 2009, Imperial had rebuilt at the site. The disaster at Imperial was not an isolated incident. In the three decades leading up to that accident, 300 dust explosions killed more than 120 workers at sugar plants, food processing plants, and grain silos across the nation. You're listening to The Rick Smith Show, where working people come to talk. You know, I got to tell you, in looking at Mary Kay Henry's legacy, and and I go back to because I think it's really important to point out, this idea between business unionism and, and movement unionism, it's something we haven't talked about a lot over the last you know, decade or so. Uh, but this idea that unions are more than just, hey, what can I get? Uh, that they are part of society. They are part of, of making things better, not just for ourselves, but across the board. And, and look, the Fight for 15 thing was, was huge in giving fast food workers and low-wage workers some ability to say we we earn better. We're worth more than the, the mere pittance that we're being paid. Because look, you look at these big companies, they're making enormous amounts of profit off the backs of low-wage workers. This is where that economic inequality comes in. By not having the bargaining power to say, what? McDonald's makes you know a billion dollars in profits? And it doesn't trickle down to all of the workers who are actually doing the work of handing the bag out the window or flipping the burgers or whatever. Say what you want about the kind of work that it is. It's still work. It's still showing up. It's still doing a job. It's putting on a smile to people who are complete and total. Never mind. It's having to deal with, well, the kind of craziness that goes on. And, and for me, that idea of having a union in the workplace that there's there's nothing more important than that in my view for a working person. Uh, now I look at this story, you know, because Michael Sonato brought up the idea that you know sexual harassment on the job is a is a huge thing, and and it is. Uh, in Pittsburgh, there was just a lawsuit settled. There, a 14 year old employee at a Pittsburgh McDonald's, one of the franchisees, not McDonald's itself, but one of the franchisees. McDonald's can you know they can distance themselves. Oh, that's one of the people, the, the franchisees. It's not us, of course. Because understand, McDonald's, you know, they, they frame themselves as, you know, the best first job ever. You know, that's that's our that's our thing. This is this is your first job, and you know, we're gonna we're gonna Yeah. America's best first job. In fact, you know, our billionaire, uh, Jeff Bezos, was able to crack three hundred eggs with one hand. That that's what it taught him. But a uh, $4.35 million settlement 
occurred because evidently a 14-year-old employee was raped by a, uh, what is it, a 43-year-old sex offender. How a 43-year-old sex offender on the registry uh, gets hired as a manager at McDonald's, no one's no one's guess. Uh, but that's what happened. And uh, this employee you know, held them accountable. Now, should this have ever happened? No, should never happen. And I would argue that if we had a union in those in those workplaces, may not have. There may have been someone to say, I don't know. This guy's a little creepy. Maybe we shouldn't. Because here's the other part of it. And this is the part that I think is important as well. Unions help protect companies from themselves. Yeah, it's kind of a big deal. Kind of a big thing. Uh, but I'll tell you, um, something, something has to be has to be done. It's just wow. Uh, anyway, so have you heard the uh, the Mayorkas impeachment? That that didn't happen. Uh, the Republicans went down in, in flames. So you know what's interesting to me is you know they they did their foolhardy best to destroy the the immigration bill, which was probably one of the harshest immigration deals uh, of my lifetime. It's mostly what Republicans wanted. They got what the, this is. This is the this is the moment where you go to the the party can't get to yes. Hold on, wait a second. The party can't say yes, and that's basically it. Because Donald Trump said no, the rest of the party said okay. And you've got a speaker who is so far, well, let's say up the rabbit hole, that uh, that they're not even going to bring, not even a vote. And I got my congressman, Scott, pardon me, Perry, you know, going, we got to kill the bill. <clears throat> now, remember, these are the people who said border security is the most important issue. Got to do something. Got to do something. This is the most important issue. Because, obviously, they had to impeach Mayorkas, the, the secretary, uh, the Department of Homeland Security secretary, because he wasn't being harsh enough on immigration. So, on one day, you've got a bill that would be harsh on immigration. And then the next day, you go, well, you are not being harsh enough. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm confused. And I know, as I've been saying for a long time, and anybody who's been listening knows, I've been saying, look, they're never going to find the a solution here because... The issue is more important than the solution. They need this to enrage people. They need this to divide people. They need this to run on because they've got nothing else. They have nothing to offer but fear, smear, and, well, it's Joe Biden's fault. And I think even that is starting to, to wane a bit. Because when you look at the fact that they've held control of the, of the House— and have passed nothing. I mean, I I sat down the other day and go, what have they done? Even messaging bills, like on the immigration front, you pass a messaging bill, and that messaging bill could quite easily be we're building a 400-foot wall. It's going to go the entire it's gonna go all the way around the country twice. Uh, we're gonna put you know a person on every 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 corner of every every block. Uh, you could come up with all kinds of insane. They don't even do that. There's nothing. Because, again, they don't want to solve this problem. They want to whine and complain. They want to point their fingers and they want to blame Joe Biden. But they don't want to do anything. And understand, it's their job. So, again, when they tell you who they are, can we believe them? They are going to do nothing. These are the do-nothing 
know nothing, fix nothing, people. And I got to tell you, I'm, I'm kind of tired of it. And you should be too. We should be demanding better. We should be demanding that, I don't know, the people that we pay do something. Even if you don't agree with it, get in there and argue about it. Put it up for a vote. Remember, what, what happened to that whole up or down vote thing? Huh. Because they know it passed. Because it's mostly what they want. That's the amazing part to me. Incredible days. I want to hear your thoughts. Email me, rick at the ricksmithshow.com. Miss any portion of the program? Make sure you grab the podcast. Wherever you get your favorite podcast, you'll find ours. Thanks so much for being here. We'll see you back here next time. You've been listening to The Rick Smith Show. Email Rick, Email Rick. at rick at Show.com. Until next time, this has been The Rick Smith Show, where working people come to talk.